This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. morning. Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27, which can be found on page 812 of the Pew Bibles around you. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would give grace upon it this morning. Would you allow for it to do its effectual work in us? Would you cause it to make us to know you more? Would you give us grace as we hear and give us grace to respond? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's just uh, jump right in. This is going to be our last sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. So we have been uh, walking our way through Jesus's words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for some time now. And we come to Jesus's conclusion and application in this sermon here this morning. So letter A, the section uh, that we're looking at this morning serves as both uh, a type of conclusion and an application to Jesus's broader teaching in the sermon. With the exhortation uh, that we find ourselves in verse 13, he begins to highlight the necessity to respond to his words, as well as exploring several potential dangers or pitfalls that will come to those who hear his words. So essentially, if you want to understand what's happening in this chunk of scripture, why we put it all together, this is Jesus calling for a necessary response to his words 
And he's then outlining, hey, here's some dangers that could come as you hear them and seek to respond to them. So what's been implicit from this point forward, right? From, from the beginning of Jesus's teaching till now, uh, now becomes explicit as Jesus calls his hearers to a response. He calls his hearers to action. And if you walk away with one thing this morning, this is, this is what I hope that we walk away from, is that when God speaks, it always calls for response. There is no neutrality when God speaks. When he thunders his voice or when he whispers his voice or when he leads his people or when he reveals himself, there is no possibility to stay neutral. We are either accepting by faith and responding to God's word or we are hardening ourselves in unbelief. There is no middle ground. And so I, I, I actually pray for this morning that we have a little sense of sobriety about us that when God speaks to us, our hearts respond, right? We're, we're, there is a call for response. The teaching of Jesus here is not simply about correct doctrine or about being a better version of ourselves, in the world. He's not just trying to make us a little bit better or like nicer or kinder or uh, trying to find a way to live more peaceably in the world. Jesus's teachings are a life-encompassing and life-altering reality that bring us to a point of decision. Let her see the implication of the whole section is that we can't remain neutral in our lives when faced with the choices of ultimate reality. Jesus is not asking us to just enjoy his teachings or give mental assent to them, right? You can't just take them in and rehearse them or regurgitate them or say you like them or put them on a, uh, like a crocheted thing on your wall. That's not what Jesus is calling for here. Jesus is calling any and all who would hear to radically reorient their entire life around him and his teachings. We don't get to pick and choose some of these and go, I like that one, I don't like this one. I like what Jesus says about loving your enemies or being peaceful and merciful and kind, but I don't like what he teaches about adultery. I don't like what he teaches about anger or I don't like what he teaches about this. I like this part, but I don't like this part. Jesus is calling us to submit the whole of our lives to him and reorient every part of who we are around what he says is good and right and lasting. One of the primary themes that we've seen in the sermon again and again is the reality of God's kingdom. What's its nature? What's the kingdom like? What's its value system, meaning what matters? And its ethics, like how do we, how do we respond? How do we live so Jesus is calling for absolute allegiance to the reality of God's kingdom as the centerpiece of our lives. And uh, don't let it go without being said, not just allegiance to his kingdom, allegiance to the king, right? Like this is, this is not separate from Jesus. This is Jesus demanding our allegiance 
in the whole of our lives. This is about submission. This is about citizenship. This is about the whole of our life existing up under the man Jesus Christ. What he says is good. What he says is right. What he requires in this world. Look at letter E. Throughout the whole scripture, it's clear that when God speaks, it demands a response. The hearers of God's word are called to either accept or reject his words. I just want this to sink into us. It's not neutral. There's never, ever neutrality when we hear God's words. We are called to respond to them. This is demonstrated either by seeking to walk in a spirit of obedience to his word. That's what faith is. I've said it again and again through the sermon. Faith looks like something. Faith is not just giving a verbal agreement to something. We're going to find that out later. Jesus is going to highlight that explicitly. It's not just saying you agree with something. Faith is not just thinking on something even. Faith looks like something. And it's a spirit of obedience responding to the teachings of Jesus or we respond by hardening our hearts to his word. That's what unbelief is. Unbelief is a hardening of our hearts to his word. So as Moses prepared the children of Israel to enter the promised land, I think Jesus is in some ways highlighting or alluding back to this moment. Now as he preaches about the kingdom and its realities in the world, as Moses prepared to take the children of Israel or, or bring them into the promised land, after retelling them the law, after they'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, he retells them the law, he recounts to them, this is how God's acted towards you, this is what God has done, and this is what he desires from you or for you in his, in his word. He calls them to choose which way they will desire to respond to him. There were only two ways set before them. One that led to life, faith and obedience, or one that leads to death, hardness of heart. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses, this is again, he's told the children of Israel the law. Again, he's recounted God's dealings. He's spoken to them what God requires, what he longs for. And this is the call and the, the, the choice put in front of them. See, I've set before you today life and the good or death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. But if you turn your heart away, you will not hear but are drawn into worshiping other gods I declare that you will perish. I have set before you, this is verse 19. I have set before you today, life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, what does he tell them to do? Choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring might live. So in a similar manner, Jesus calls his hearers 
to choose the way that they will respond to his words, right? He's given us all these recountings. This is what God desires. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what matters in the kingdom of heaven. These are the values of the kingdom of heaven. This is what I long for, for the people who will come and follow me and live in accordance with my purposes and my ways. This is how they'll live in the world. This is the, these are the things they turn away from. These are the things they accept. This is how they live before their father. He outlines all these things and he says, so come into the narrow way. What does he say? Choose the way you will go. Go the way of ease and comfort and the the way that's natural to us. I promise you it's going to lead to destruction and death. But there's a way, though it's difficult and costly and hard to find, it leads to life. You see, Jesus is doing the same thing here as Moses was. Now, the glorious reality that we just remember again and again of the new covenant is that because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's people are now given the power to walk in a spirit of obedience to his words. Don't don't forget this. To live in grace in the new covenant does not take away the necessity of obedience. That that is a unbiblical portrait of the grace of God. The grace of God means that I can be accepted before God on the basis of a merit that I did not have, Christ's and Christ alone. I am brought into fellowship with him. But the promise of the new covenant is that God now gives to his children the gift of the Holy Spirit and writes the law on our hearts so that we now have active within us because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to walk in obedience to the things of God. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to every moment of our life. This doesn't mean we're going to be sinless and perfect, but it does mean that we can walk in a spirit of obedience to the things of God over our lives, now empowered by his grace. Look at Hebrews chapter eight. The writer of Hebrews makes this explicit when he talks about the new covenant now made by Jesus Christ. And it was promised of in the Old Testament. The promise is this. I'll make a new covenant with them. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. See, the difference between us and the hearers of Moses is when Moses said, hey, choose life between life and death. They had no power to walk in obedience to God. Their hearts were sinful and depraved and they were dead in their own trespasses. Now in Christ, we've been made alive and we can by his grace, choose to walk in the way that is, uh, brings life. They will know me from the least to the greatest is how that ends. Look at letter H. Still, we must hear and respond to Jesus's words as a call to orient our lives around the way that will lead to true and lasting life. When we hear his voice, let us not harden our hearts in unbelief. That's another scripture from Hebrews There, look at the top of page two. So what is the choice that Jesus puts in front of us? 
He says there's only two ways. There's only two roads you can walk on in your life. There's one that leads to life and there's one that leads to destruction. There's not a third way. There's not a middle way. There's not having one foot on one path and one foot on the other. There are two roads, Jesus says. Hear his words again. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus begins his conclusion with an exhortation. Disciples, listen to me. If you've heard my words, enter by the narrow gate. This exhortation is built on the image that Jesus gives, demonstrating that there are only two options before those who hear his word. Either we accept them and follow Jesus, or we reject them and continue walking in the way that leads to destruction. So the image is pretty easy to get, right? It's not, it's not hard to wrap our minds around. He's giving two possible responses, and they're highlighted by two types of gate and two roads that we walk on, right? There's a wide gate and an easy way. The first road is pictured as wide and luxurious. It's filled with ease and comfort. The path doesn't cost anything for those that walk on it. There's nothing that has to be left behind, nothing that has to be forsaken. It's easy. It's natural. You could put that there. It's natural. It's just the path of least resistance. It's the one that looks attractive and alluring and enticing, and it draws us. And if we don't conscientiously strive, it says in other places in Luke's retelling of the Sermon on the Mount, strive to enter the narrow gate. If we don't strive by God's grace to go into the narrow way, we will find ourselves on the path of destruction. It's easy. It's luxurious. It's comfortable. It doesn't cost anything. It's wide open and easy to find. The second Jesus says is narrow, the narrow gate and the hard way. The second road is pictured as narrow and difficult. Very few choose to walk through it because the way is hard and it costs us. It costs us. It costs us our fleshly desires, the things that we want naturally in the world, the comforts and the pleasures and the ease of life that we long for are not found on that way. That's a sober reality. It's a hard reality. Let her see the implication from Jesus's picture is there is now a choice before us who have, his, have heard his words. We can remain living in accordance with the prevailing cultural norms, our value systems, our allegiances that are rooted in fleshly and earthly desires, or we can choose to follow him. So we've said again and again, the Sermon on the Mount is a declaration of what God loves, what his kingdom's like, how we will experience ultimate blessedness, right? But he says there's a choice before us. Do we go with the path of least resistance, 
keep going with the cultural norms, the values of this world, the ways of this flesh and our own desires? Or do we seek to enter by the narrow way, the narrow gate? The way of this world is broad and easy, but leads to destruction. The way of the kingdom is difficult and narrow, but in the end, it is the only way that leads to true life. I want you to hear this. Look at letter D. Jesus is concerned for our eternal well-being. This really matters. This is a hard teaching. This is a sober word, and it would be easy to think of Jesus as some kind of killjoy or some kind of stingy legalist that is keeping you from things that you want or things that you like. But what we have to choose to believe by faith is that Jesus wants our ultimate blessedness. That's where the Sermon on the Mount starts. Do you want fullness? Do you want life? Do you want wholeness? Do you want fruitfulness? Do you want joy that is abundant and unending and inexpressible forever? This is the way to find it. And it is hard because you and I, in our selfish, self-oriented, sinful desires, love the way that feels good to us now, but is utterly killing us. And we won't see it. We won't look at that. And Jesus goes, I want you to come on a different road, a different path. Any message, any message of salvation, flourishing life or prosperity that doesn't solely center on the person of Jesus, faith in him and obedience to him will ultimately lead to destruction. So Jesus himself is the narrow gate. Okay, this is really important to not miss. Jesus is the door. He's the narrow door that by faith in him, we have to come into to walk on the path of following him. He is the only door through which we can experience life. There are no other paths to experience the fullness of life in God. Now, this is, again, not super popular in our day and age. This means something. This means the gate is narrow because it's exclusive. It's not exclusive on who can come through it. Anyone and everyone who will hear and who will submit to Jesus can come through it. It's not exclusive because it's saying, hey, you, because of your status or because of uh, your background or because of anything about who you are, you, you're excluded from it. That's not why it's exclusive. It's exclusive because you have to submit to one person. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Je Jesus says in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through him, through him alone. There is no other way. Jesus is the gate, the door, the narrow way. Response to Jesus is not just 
This is why this, is why this matters. Response to Jesus isn't just like praying a prayer. It is submission to the whole of our life. It's not saying that uh, I believe in a God who loves and so he doesn't ask me to come up under his ways. That's not what Jesus is getting at here either. Jesus is saying the only way to find life is to come to me, through me, and do it on my terms. That's why it's narrow and hard and costly. That is the message here. John 10, Jesus says he is the door. This is a beautiful reality where he emphasizes that he alone is the way through which we find life. The exhortation, letter F, again highlights that there is a real cost to discipleship. Jesus demands that the whole of our lives are ordered around allegiance to him alone. There's no middle ground in following him. This will not be a way that is greatly populated. And it's often will be highly misunderstood, right? There's gonna be times in our lives as we pursue this that it's seen as unnecessary, radical, extremist, fundamentalist, legalist, whatever you want to put on it, whatever derogatory term you want to put on it, it's going to be seen as that in your own heart at times and in the relationships that you walk with at times. Jesus is saying, I want you to respond to me and believe that I alone am the way that you can find life and I want to be absolute Lord of your life. So when I say, I want that thing, that thing is killing you and I want it and I don't want you to have it anymore. Well, God, you don't want me to not have any fun, right? You don't want me to be one of those stringy fundamentalist types. And he might go, I want that. I'm not asking for you to go, I'll take this and this, but not this. I want it all. I want all of your life. I want all of who you are. It all comes up under submission to who he is. Look at letter G. When Jesus calls a follower, he invites him to take up his cross and follow him in the way of self-sacrifice. It's only in the obedience of losing our lives that we find true life in the end. Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone, now circle that word, anyone, Again, remember what the exclusivity of Christianity means. The exclusivity of, of Christianity does not mean it's exclusive to a type of person. It's open and all to anyone who will submit themselves to Jesus. But it is exclusive in that submission to Jesus by faith is required. It is required if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Why? For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will ultimately find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So for those who seek to gain the whole world, or you could read differently there, walking the broad, easy, 
path, the wide gate that's easy. That sounds like gaining the world, right? If we gain the world, we can ultimately lose our own life in the end. So we talk about cost of discipleship. I think we should be equally as bold about talking about the cost of not discipling, non-discipleship. Do you know how much the cost of non-discipleship is? Infinite in its scope. To be hardened to the words of Jesus may result in us gaining the world, but in the end, it leads to utter destruction. Utter destruction. So to follow Jesus is difficult for our flesh and our selfish desires. However, it's the only truly liberating way for our hearts as we submit to learning his ways. Okay, look at the top of page three. So Jesus puts this call in front of us. Then he begins to outline several dangers or pitfalls, right? He, he gives us all these words and he says, I'm putting before you a choice. Respond or harden your heart. There is no middle ground. Submit to me in faith or reject what I'm saying. There's not a muddy middle ground. There's not an ambiguous, nuanced middle way. There is only two. Then he goes, okay, I want you to watch out for a couple things. Here's gonna be some pitfalls that happen as the call for obedience and the call to respond to my words goes out. You're gonna find certain things and I want you to watch out for them. Number one, there's going to be people that tell you other things and I want you to watch out for them. I want you to beware of them. He talks about false teachers and then he begins to tell two dangers that will come against us uh, as we relate to his words. So the first is this danger of false teaching, right? Beware of false prophets, he says immediately here. And you're, this isn't Jesus just stringing together random statements. There is a flow to what he's getting at. He calls for response. And then the first thing that he says to us is, watch out. There's going to be people walking around in your midst that look like they're sheep, but inside they're wolves. They're going to tell you a different message and tell you things that are not pleasing to me. Watch for them. Watch for them. So the need for discernment, let her be, is high because false teachers appear harmless for a time, right? Nobody walks around with a big placard on their chest that says false teacher, right? They don't look like a false teacher. They look like a sheep. They look just like a sheep. But Jesus says, so for a time, they're going to look like this. But be discerning and test things because fruit will always show. So he, he moves metaphors, right? First, he's talking about sheep uh, or wolves in sheep's clothing, meaning there's a time when it looks harmless and it seems like uh, it's hard to discern, but he goes, watch for this because a fruit will always betray the type of tree that it is. Always. Always, 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 always. A bad tree can't give good fruit. It cannot do it. So 
Let it have time. Test it. Be discerning and wise. So this section is connected to what Jesus has just exhorted because there will always be teachers who come along to promote the broad and easy way. And the broad and easy way doesn't always just mean like get more money, have more comforts, all those kind of things. The broad and easy way is the way that does not cut against the grain of our latent selfishness and call us to come and die. That's the broad and easy way. Jesus wants our minds and hearts on guard so that we might discern teachers who lead us astray or seek to lead us astray, right? So this could be promoting a false grace message or promoting a version of Christianity that doesn't embody the teachings of Jesus here. So Jesus instructs us, how do we relate to this? He tells us to evaluate by fruit. Now I'm going to do a little work to help us understand what he's meaning here. Because it's essential, because the nature of false teaching sounds, for a time, really similar to the scripture. The problem throughout church history with bad teaching, you could call it heresy, is not that it is false. It's that it's not wholly true. Oftentimes, it takes one reality and highlights it at the expense of a bunch of other ones. Right? And it focuses on it. And it's like, that sounds really true. That sounds really good. Yes, yes, yes. But it misses all of these other ones. And because of that, it leads to perverse, distorted fruit over time. Look at letter E. So how do we understand the nature of fruit? You could probably put it into a couple categories. Number one, you can look at personal fruit. So there are times when the measure of a teaching ought to be evaluated by the nature of the personal character and the evidences of God's grace in someone's life, right? This doesn't mean, again, that a person isn't sinful or weak or broken or stumbling or like a, a work in progress. That's not what this means. Does, what it does mean is, does this person have a spirit of obedience that is growing toward the fruits of the spirit, the beatitudes being, being moved and, and cultivated in their life? Or do you, as you watch their life, do they tend toward the fruits of the flesh? Look at Galatians 5 here. Paul outlines this for us in a similar context where he's bringing forth uh, 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 what's happening among the body of believers um, in, in the Galatian church. Now the works of the flesh will become evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Those are like, whoa, you know, that's intense. Here's the ones where it starts to get like, watch this, watch this, watch this. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's fruits of a bad tree. We would see. But the fruit of the Spirit is like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I love how Paul, in a similar manner, 
He's not going to let us off the hook of cross-bearing obedience to Christ Jesus in grace. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, what is true of us? We have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. As he's talking about fruits, he goes, how do we pursue this? Why do we long to see these in us? Because when we said yes, we didn't say yes for the wide, broad, easy path. We said yes to the narrow gate that crucifies my passions and my desires and submits them to Jesus and his ways. So we look at personal fruit. The second thing we look at is what kind of fruit is promoted among these people? Another way of discerning the nature of false teaching is to see what outcome is being promoted by someone's teaching. Is a teacher seeking to call others to live in accordance with the fruits of the spirit, the Beatitudes, obedience to Christ's commands? Similar to what we've talked about with judgment and how we talked about beware of what you listen to. I think a lot of There's a lot of momentum, even in the church right now, that calls for vindication, right? Airing grievances, like bringing things out and and, and bringing things to experience some sort of repayment or vindication and all that. I want to go read Matthew 5 again, Matthew 6 again, Matthew 7 again. I want to promote peacefulness and mercy and meekness and gentleness, self-control. What's being promoted in the declaration of uh, uh, someone's teaching or someone's exhortation? So we see personal fruit, we see promoted fruit. And then here's an important thing to augment this with. I don't think what Jesus means here is fruit is external in the sense of how many people like or don't like the teaching, right? One difficult reality when we seek to assess fruit is making sense of it in an external manner. The fruit of a person's teaching is not to be equated with everybody listening to it, accepting it, following it, and liking it, right? Jesus tells a story about when the word of God goes out and it interacts with different kinds of soils, right? There's four kinds of soils. Three of them reject it, right? If this criteria was applied to Jesus, he would not be seen as very fruitful, right? Jesus had crowds and multitudes when he was feeding them and driving out demons from them and healing them. But when he told them they had to come and eat his flesh and drink his blood, John 6 tells us that most departed. They didn't like it, right? So this isn't going, everybody likes what's being said, right? I've, I've, I've been around the block for a couple decades now, and there's all this talk at times where people are like, well, that ministry's fruit is rotten because there were people there and then they left. It's like, oh, no, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't necessitate anything. That's just human dynamics. That's the, the soils of the soul. Like, There are times when people hear the word, accept it, it gets really hard, they reject it, and then they hate everything about something. That's real. 
Okay, so we're not looking at uh, something is always moving up and to the right as well, externally. So Jesus wants us to beware of false teachers. Look at the top of page four. Just one further thing related to false teaching. Look at letter G. I think it's really important that Jesus doesn't tell us necessarily what to do with false teachers. He just tells us to watch out for them. He doesn't say the minute you see false teachers, you get on social media and start obliterating their name. Well, they're false. They're going to hurt all these people. How about you practice Matthew 5, 6, and 7? And trust that God will do his work. He says there will be a day when bad fruit trees will be shown for what they are. And proper judgment will be brought to them in God's good timing. Okay, so he finishes the sermon with two other dangers that we're going to have. Right? There's two ways. Here we go. Choose life or choose the broad, easy, destructive way. Watch out. There's going to be people that tell you that walking the broad, destructive way is actually what I want. Watch out for that. And there's going to be two temptations in your own heart as you hear this. There's two big dangers. And both of these highlight and emphasize the necessity of obedience as the expected response to belief in Jesus. So the first danger is this. There is a danger that we would give mere verbal profession, but inside we don't know Jesus and we do not obey him. Look at verse 21. Not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who? The one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Sounds like a real fruitful ministry, right? More than we can say sometimes. That was a joke. <laughs> I would like all of those things to be happening here. I would love that. But Jesus goes, that's not what it's ultimately about. There is a way to operate even in the miraculous nature of God's kingdom and still be far off from the heart of the king. I don't have time to like work that all out, but it's possible. There are those who will profess to know Jesus and who even minister in his name but do not have a true heart level relationship with him that's defined by obedience. Throughout the scripture, there is a dynamic relationship between intimacy with Christ through faith and the response of obedience submission to him in our lives. Faith and obedience are like two sides of one coin. You cannot separate them. Look at Jesus's words here. I love you like the Father loves me. Let that truth wash your mind. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. 
you have walked headlong in the opposite way of that, everything about your record demands that that would not be true about you. And he gave it to you as a gift. He lavished it upon you when you were his enemy. He goes, so now abide in my love. Yeah, I want to. Does abiding in your love looking like sitting with my Bible open and a cup of coffee and crying and like uh, feelings, like these sentimental feelings? Man, I hope it does sometimes. But that's not what he says. He says, abide in my love. How? If you keep my commandments, choose this day, life or death. How do we know we are in the love of God? We seek to obey with a spirit of obedience and submission to him. So in this section, we're further to understand that fruitfulness before God is not simply equated with external impact. Many times people can misinterpret God's active power in their life or their ministry. And they see that as a validation of their character or their relationship with him. But here's the fascinating thing. Sometimes God just gives gifts, right? He just gives a gift. He gives a gift and wants someone to experience life and power. So what Jesus is getting at here is, hey, watch out for false teachers. You'll know them by their fruit. Hey, there will be people who look really, really, really fruitful, but they don't do the will of my father. So we must seek to walk out faithful obedience and love for Christ in the places where no one's watching, where nobody sees, where no trumpet blasts are gonna give us accolades. That's where I want to do the will of my Father because on the day when I stand in the presence of Jesus, I want him to say, I know you. I know you really well. The second danger, so the first is that we would give verbal profession. The second danger is that we would merely know his words and not express them through obedience. Again, this is Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. So Jesus concludes the whole sermon by teaching there's a possibility of hearing his words and not obeying them, not responding to them in a spirit of obedience. It's not enough for us to know Jesus's teachings. It's not enough for us to give some kind of mental assent to them or credence to them, or again, like put them on our wall and, and long for them to define our life, right? It is not enough to just hear them. Our entire life has to be ordered up under what he says, what he declares to us. The knowledge of Jesus' words requires a faith-filled response that seeks to walk in them in a spirit of obedience. Okay, so I want us to close this morning just with a, a real, like, assessment or a, a real posture of response before the Lord. Jesus over the course of this sermon, and as we've been walking through it for the last four or five months, he is calling to us and he's setting before us a sober choice. 
between life and death. So when faced with the truth of eternity, we cannot afford to try to find our own way. Right? I'm not good enough, wise enough, smart enough, uh, thoughtful enough, kind enough, any of those. I am not enough to find my own way. When faced with eternal reality, I have to come to someone else to get that. And Jesus invites us to come and find life in him, responding to him, living our lives in accordance with what he's called us to. He calls us to respond to him with humble trust and choose life. Choose life by looking to him. Choose life by calling upon his name and his name alone, calling out to him and asking him for his grace and his life to be expressed in us. So would you stand with me? How I want us to respond this morning is just a simple I want to just take a couple moments as the team comes up, as we prepare to come receive communion together. I want us to just respond to the Lord by setting our hearts before him again today. Just setting our hearts and saying, God, we want to choose life. It cuts against the grain of every one of my ambitions and selfish desires and passions, but you didn't call me to come into your ways and get everything that I already wanted. You came or you called me to submit my life to you, to be crucified in my passions and in my selfish desires and find true life. So let's just respond and say yes to that this morning. Say yes to that this morning. God, we, we set our hearts to you, before you, to obey you, to submit ourselves to you. God, would you give us the grace this morning to submit the whole of our lives to you as Lord. Jesus, you are the king. And so you get to decide what is good, what is right, what is lasting, what our lives look like, where we should go, what jobs we have, how we spend our money, how we spend our free time, what our relationships look like what our free time looks like, what our leisure looks like, what every single part of our life looks like, you get the say in it. God, so we just say yes. We say yes. Even, even give us grace this morning to long to say yes more. God, would we respond as a people to your exhortation to enter through the narrow gate? We look to you and to you alone. Would you empower us to walk in your ways? Would you give us sustaining grace? God, let us not be caught up in delusion or deception that we would be begin to believe that coming to you means that we still get to be like Lord of our life. Would you, would you lovingly and graciously Put us in our right place there. And let us experience the joy and the life of coming to you.
You're just gonna continue to respond in this way. Even all across the room, you can stay in a posture of response to the Lord um, in that place. We're also going to sing together. We're gonna come and take communion together. We've got ministers in the room that would love to pray with you, pray for you. As you, as you desire to respond to the Lord, just even for grace and, and strength and sustenance, wisdom, discernment, courage, all those things. We would love to stand and pray with you. But on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's broken for your healing. It's broken for you to find life to sustain you and nourish you. Take it and eat. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and after giving thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins, for your forgiveness, that you might have access to God Almighty through the sacrifice of Jesus. Take it and drink from it. So we're gonna respond and delight in the gift of grace in Christ Jesus. Even rejoicing in the narrow way, the narrow gate, only way by which we find life through faith in his death, his resurrection. The way we take communion at Redeemer Fellowship is you take a piece of the bread off, you dip it in the cup, the uh, wine will be in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle, in the balcony, and we'll have a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. Yes, servers, you're welcome to come on forward. And this meal is open to any and all who would look to Jesus alone, who are seeking this morning to respond to his call to enter by the narrow gate. It's open to you. Come and delight in it. Come and rejoice in it. Come and rejoice in the fact that nothing that you could do would qualify you to enter into it. That all you can do is come and receive. You're welcome to come and eat this meal with us. If you're in this room and that's not what you believe, you're, you don't put your trust and faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come take this meal with us. This meal is a, a sign that points to the reality of our faith in Christ. This meal is, is a sign that looks to what we rejoice in. And so don't feel the pressure to come and take it if you don't believe in the reality. You can stay in your seat. We're really glad you're here. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you if you would desire but don't feel the pressure to come and take. So we're gonna respond in those ways. We'll sing together, come to the table when you're ready. And we have ministers that would love to pray with you. So we're gonna respond that way now. Amen.